Have you ever wondered why there are literally thousands of different religions that all claim to follow Christ under the umbrella of Christianity, and yet they teach all different kinds of things, all different kinds of titles, all different kinds of organizational structures, all different kinds of plans of salvation? Is it possible that all these religions are acceptable to God? These questions will serve as the basis of a series of podcasts that we're starting today under the general topic of traditions of men versus the word of God. Please stay tuned for this and subsequent podcasts and learn more about why there's such religious division in the world. And more importantly, how does God view that? Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Oh, and good morning. My name is Jeff, here with co-host Brian. Hello, Brian, how you doing? Hey, doing well, Jeff. Really looking forward to this series. Exactly. And in this particular series, we do want to examine what many of the major world religions teach under the general canopy of Christianity and compare it to what God's Word has to say. Now, based on this, and this is not just an academic exercise, you know, we do want to understand better what church, you know, local congregation we should become a member of, at least according to the scriptures, where we can properly worship God, carry out the work Jesus has assigned to his church, you know, given us to do. And likewise, in each episode, we will also answer questions that have been previously submitted to our website that might be related to that particular subject or denomination. But today, what we'd like to do as sort of a basis for subsequent podcasts is we'd like to very, very briefly look at the state of quote-unquote Christianity today, uh, different groups, and then define important terms that are you know, often used in the religious world. We want to look at various examples of traditions in the Bible and see if they were acceptable to God back then, roughly, you know, 2,000 years ago. We'd like to look at general traditions of men in the religious world today, again, generally speaking, and then very briefly examine the Lord's Church and its characteristics that we can read about in the Bible. Again, today's podcast is more foundational. Subsequent podcasts will then probe more deeply into various, quote-unquote, branches of Christianity, notable denominations, with a view of seeing or comparing and contrasting what they teach versus God's Word. Brian, any other general comments before we kind of quickly survey the state of Christianity? Yeah, just one thought. You know, as we go through this series, one thing that we want to make clear, it's not our goal to attack any specific denomination or specific mainstream religion, we simply want to examine what they themselves have declared as their beliefs and compare it to the Word of God. We want to do so because, as Jeff touched on early on, there's so many religions in the world today, and ultimately what we want to do as Bible believers, believers in God's Word, is examine anything that is taught, whether it's for somebody from the Church of Christ or somebody from Catholicism. It doesn't really matter which religion. We have to examine what they're teaching and see if it matches God's Word. So that's really the point here, is just to make sure that we're using God's Word as a standard, and we just have a little better understanding of what some of these mainstream religions believe. Good. Appreciate that. Okay, so to kind of give, a, again, a state, generally speaking, of quote-unquote Christianity, one website I found 
claims that, at least according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, there are more than 200 Christian denominations in the United States and a staggering 45,000 globally. Now, of course, as you look around the world, quote-unquote Christianity certainly is dominated by Catholicism, which has about half of the 2.6 billion people on the planet that claim some type of allegiance to Christianity. And of course, under Catholicism, that tends to be dominated by Roman Catholicism, or what sometimes is called the Latin Church. But you also have other parts of Catholicism to include Eastern Catholic, which includes a number of different subgroups related to religious worship rites, Byzantine Rite, East Syriac, West Syriac, Armenian, Alexandrian. Beyond that, you have some other splits, including the Society of St. Pius X, the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, various independent Catholic congregations or various independent Catholic denominations like the Philippine Independent Church, the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, the Traditionalist Mexican-American Catholic Church, the Polish National Catholic Church, etc. And likewise, you have a large number of Catholic-like denominations and religious groups under the Eastern or what more commonly is known as the Greek Orthodox community that was created by the, the quote-unquote Great Schism of 1054 AD, you know, between Western Roman Catholicism and Eastern you know, Greek Orthodox Catholicism. And that's just within the umbrella of, generally speaking, Catholicism. And then, of course, over in the Protestant world and independent world, you got groups, subgroups like Anglicans, Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Adventists, Salvation Army, Pentecostals, uh, Messianic Judaism, uh, Restorationists, and then those that are considered, uh, I guess I would say, somewhat odd, perhaps even cult-ish. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, Church of Christ Scientists, and on and on and on it goes. Now, all of this, ponder this for a moment. All of this, all of this is in direct contradiction to what Jesus, who's supposed to be the head of the church, and his Holy Spirit-inspired apostles taught. For example, in John chapter 17, when he is praying to the Father, verse 20 Jesus, initially referring to the apostles then present, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, interesting passage, Paul, through the Spirit speaking. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Later in 1 Corinthians, in the 11th chapter, verse 18, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Same book, chapter 12, verse 25. That there be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of peace and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next chapter, Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have heard, or which you have learned, and avoid them. 
One more passage, one or two more. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning roughly verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, skipping forward a little bit, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Several other passages I'll just mention. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. All those you can find references to being of one mind. Now, Brian, I might also encourage our listeners to go back to listen to one of our previous podcasts. That would be podcast number 129, which was on unity and division which covers the principles I just went through very briefly in much greater detail. Brian, over to you. Appreciate you kind of setting the table, so to speak, with those foundational passages, because as we go through this series, some of those passages that Jeff read are going to be very, very foundational to what the point that the Bible is trying to get us to understand, and that there's only one standard. You know, one other thing that we want to do is, as we once again start off this series, we feel like it's important for us to look at some definitions that you'll hear us use throughout. And so, you know, some might even ask, there are so many different terms in the religious world today. What are some important terms that would be good for us to know? And so we want to have just a couple here that, that will help. For instance, the word tradition, you know, that's the, the name of this series, the traditions of men versus the word of God. Well, the word tradition itself, if you look in the Greek, in the Bible, it means transmission of a precept, ordinance, tradition in the sense of handing over or down, received by tradition from fathers. So we're going to actually look at that in another section about traditions in the Bible and were they all good or were some bad, those kinds of things. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as the handing down of information, beliefs, and customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another without written instruction. So I think the key point here as we look at that definition is it is often oral. So instead of looking at written instruction like the Bible, these customs, these beliefs were often handed down verbally. And we'll see that in the Bible as well. Denomination, let's look at that term. What does that mean? Well, Merriam-Webster defines it as a religious organization whose congregations are united in their adherence to its beliefs and practices. So we often in our podcast talk about there are many denominations at the very beginning, Jeff talking about all these different religions. That's really what we're talking about. Denominations are united in it to its own practices and beliefs. They're united together. Collins English Dictionary says a group having a distinctive interpretation of a religious faith and usually its own organization. And so I want to remember that definition because as we get into some of the reasons why there are so many religions, this is one of the main reasons because they have a distinctive interpretation of something that may be, for instance, found in the Bible. All right, let's move on now and talk about this word Protestant. Now, you'll probably notice just from the word itself, it has the word protest in it. And for those of you that know church history, you had Martin Luther, who put his 95 theses on the door of a church, a Catholic church, basically protesting some of the practices 
that the Catholic Church were engaged in, such as, for instance, what they call the selling of indulgences, where you could pay some money to the church, the Catholic Church, and have your sins forgiven. And so anyhow, he he listed a whole a litany of things that he was protesting. And so when we look at religions that came out of the Protestant movement, you'll see religions today like Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist. Those are what we call Protestant religions. So Merriam-Webster defines that as a member of any of several church denominations, denying the universal authority of the Pope and affirming the Reformation principles of justification by faith alone, the priesthood of all believers, and the primacy of the Bible as the only source of revealed truth, broadly. A Christian not of a Catholic or Eastern church. Now that one's very interesting because you can see here they are denying the universal authority of the Pope, and they're saying that the Bible should be the only revealed source of truth. But as we start to look at some of these denominations, these Protestant religions, I think what we're going to find is that they make that claim, but we have to ask, are they really following what the Bible teaches? So anyhow, that'll come down the road. All right, Wikipedia has a definition that says, Protestantism is a form of Christianity which originated with the Reformation, a movement against what its followers consider to be heirs in the Roman Catholic Church. So that just gives you an idea on that. All right. How about the word Christian? Now, there's a lot of confusion with this term in the world today because even the Catholic Church, for instance, is considered a quote unquote Christian religion. So if you were to go look up religious statistics, there's a whole lot of religions that are lumped under the term Christian. And so what we want to understand is, well, what does this term mean? Well, in the Bible, the Greek definition of Christian is really simple. It's just a follower of Christ. So on the surface, many would say any religion that follows any of Christ's teaching can be considered a Christian religion. Well, that's how the world defines it. But is that really an accurate way to understand this definition? No, I think what we'll see, certainly as we engage more through the study, is that the true definition of Christian according to the Bible is that you follow all of God's will. And that's an important distinction. Okay, how about the word cult? Probably have heard that. Hey, there are cults today. There have been cults for a long time. Well, there's many different definitions. Let me just kind of roll through these quickly. Number one, a system of religious beliefs and ritual. A religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. So think about voodoo or satanic religions, things like that. A religion whose beliefs differ from the majority around them. A religious group that denies one or more of the fundamentals of biblical truth. A religion or sect considered to be false, unorthodox, or extremist, with members of often living outside of conventional society under the direction of a charismatic leader. So think about like the Branch Davidians and people like that. That's really what would fall into this definition. The last one, a group of people gathered about a specific person or person's interpretation of the Bible. So, for instance, the Mormons adhere to teachings from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Christian scientists follow Mary Baker Eddy's teachings. Jehovah's Witnesses follow the interpretations of Charles Russell and J.F. Rutherford. So these would all be considered cults. And then the final term we'll look at, and Jeff, I'll turn it over to you, is community church. So in the United States, at least, if you were just to drive around in a major city, you're going to predominantly see, I think probably more than any other religion, it seems, could be wrong, but, but just a lot of community churches that either have like Christian in their name or community in their name. And so when you look at the origin of these churches, they started within small communities who didn't have the population or the finances to support all these different denominations. 
So they basically agreed to pool their resources and create what we might call an all faiths type church. So like, hey, we're going to bring in all these people with all these different beliefs. And out of love, we're just going to tolerate each other's differing beliefs. And so you, you might hear this term interdenominational, where you have this cooperation among what they call Christian denominations. There's one pastor or leader that typically guides the church. They often have like strategic partnerships with community organizations, so outreach programs in conjunction with a city or a community. They often have multiple ministries that go along with that. Could be anything from women's ministries, prison ministries, children's ministries, things like that. If you were to attend their worship, you'll often see that they're very charismatic and emotion-filled. And they promote something we call unity and diversity, as I just kind of mentioned. Hey, let's just all get along. We know that we have differing beliefs. We still love God. So let's just all get together and worship under that heading. And so anyhow, that's kind of some definitions. I know, Jeff, we can go through several more, right? But those are kind of some real basic ones that we'll use throughout this series. Yes, and now we've already seen in even a simple explanation of different uh, definitions, different terms, that these groups are clearly identifiable. They have different names, different ways of worshiping, different ways of joining them, etc. And of course, I think our listeners, you know, appreciate that, you know, if, if you walk into a Catholic church, what you'll experience, what they teach, is different than walking into a Pentecostal Church of God, different than walking into a Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran or Mormon congregation. Very distinct, very clearly identifiable. Again, all claiming to be following Christ and yet teaching a bewildering variety of doctrines. And so, yeah, we're already seeing that we're not united as Jesus and Paul you know, with the Holy Spirit has commanded us to be, encouraged us to be, you know, requires us to be as part of Christ and his church. Now, you know, Brian, some people may ask, well, what are some of the reasons why we have such, I'll use the term diversity today, what are some of the reasons why you know, new religions form that didn't previously exist. And candidly, the answer to that is a very wide, likewise, a very wide diversity of answers and reasons and rationale. For example, with Mormonism, a claim to have received some kind of direct miraculous revelation from God, or like with Mormonism, you know, from uh, an angel. Some groups will see other groups, like you talked about the difference between, you know, Protestants and Catholics. So Protestants would see the Catholic Church as having somehow corrupted the teachings of the New Testament, and they're going to partially repair, have some reforming of abuses under the Catholic Church, and hence a lot of the Protestant branches. Some religious groups say the Bible itself has been corrupted. And so we need a new Bible and you can kind of see that in some, uh, certainly to some degree within Mormonism and also to you know, some degree within you know, Christian scientists. Wherever you have a modern person who claims to have direct access to God, writes down something new and says, okay, this is like Bible 2.0 or a updated revelation. You'll have groups that will rally around them. Some uh, religions kind of see the Bible as being somewhat dated or antiquated, and so want to inject or introduce more modern practices. And 
off the top of my head, you know, we kind of see that with some of the worship styles, quote unquote, contemporary worship with large bands, light shows, special effects, etc. We also see that with some religious groups claiming to follow Christ, but are now adopting gay, lesbian members, allowing them to come in and continue practicing those kinds of acts, or even within their quote-unquote clergy, for example. But perhaps one of the larger reasons is variance in the interpretation of the scriptures. There were a lot of, perhaps the majority, certainly Protestant organizations, claimed to be guided by just the scriptures. And yet within themselves, there's a lot of disagreement over what the scriptures teach in terms of plan of salvation, you know, work of the church, proper worship, you know, once saved, always saved, etc. So a lot of reasons. And as we'll see in a few moments, this splintering, if you will, uh, various religious groups is certainly not limited to modern day, certainly not limited to the 1500s, 1600s with Catholics versus Protestants. We'll see this is an ongoing or has been an ongoing thing in the world of Christianity since its inception, even during New Testament times, and even prior to that. So lots of reasons. Uh, and of course, from our perspective, we would encourage people to look at the reason why your particular religious group was founded and whether or not it is indeed based on the scriptures. And of course, we'll get into that a whole lot more as this series unfolds. Brian? You know, I want to latch on to one of the important statements that you made regarding modern religions and how they often will reflect the culture that they're a part of. And if we look back through time, we see that also has been the same, where based on what was going on in the culture, it often will reflect what a religion will do. And, you know, someone might ask, well, is this creation of various religions something relatively new, as in you know, just the last couple of hundred years? And the answer to that is no, really, it's an age-old problem, as we might say. And so if you look at really kind of a fundamental base level, it's really a conflict between man's ideas versus God's law. So whether it's somebody taking a passage in Ezekiel that's figurative or a revelation that's figurative and trying to make it literal, as you mentioned, Jeff, with the misinterpretation of Scripture, or somebody that just selfishly wants to do what they want to do, and the only way they can accomplish that is by rejecting God's Word. And we really see that with Cain, for instance. So going all the way back to the very beginning, the first two children, Cain and Abel, were born. And Cain, being the first, was the first one to commit this kind of a sin as it relates to specifically worship. If you look at Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, you'll notice that God wanted them to bring a sacrifice gave them, according to other scriptures, exactly what he wanted. Abel brought the sacrifice that God was looking for. Cain did not. So therefore, in that section, you'll see there that God rejected Cain's sacrifice. And it made Cain angry. And so in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So what is he speaking there? Well, the lesson that we learned from him is that his worship was considered acceptable and righteous, as it says here, because it followed God's plan. 
Over in 1 John chapter 3, it tells us that Cain's works were evil. So, Jeff, could you read that for us? 1 John chapter 3, 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So we see here that Cain could not accept what God wanted him to do. He brought an offering according to Genesis 4-3 that was of the fruit of the ground. That's not what God wanted. God wanted the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And you see that in the old law. Abel brought that sacrifice. It says in verse 4 that the Lord respected his offering. This is Genesis 4-4. Verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. Now, I also want to just look at one statement here God made to Cain. Verse 6. So this is Genesis 4-6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So really straightforward. He's basically saying, if, if you'll just do what I asked, Cain, you'll be accepted. Well, God's telling all of us in the religious world today the same thing. If you'll just do what I ask, you're going to be accepted. But notice he goes on to say, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. So going back to the very beginning, we can see the origin of when man wants to do something different than what God has asked us to do as it relates to worship and sacrifice and so forth. Now, another thing that we see and have seen, certainly in the Bible, is idolatry. Man has always had this tendency to desire something they could visibly see. And so Deuteronomy chapter 4 kind of talks about this, beginning in verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at, at Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, or the likeness, verse 18, of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. So we know in Genesis chapter 1 that God created us in his image and his likeness. So we all know in our hearts that there's a supreme being, and we want to worship him. Most people will desire to worship him. What some people struggle with is because they can't see the Lord, that's tough. And so they, they want to have something physical, like a physical idol in the image of one of these things that we just read that they can physically worship. Or like the Egyptians, some worshiped the sun. Some of the pharaohs were sun worshipers and, and those kinds of things. So ultimately, this is really, if you think about it, just a lack of respect for God's authority. And all of us really in society understand that we have to have authority in our society or it would be an uncivil society. And so that's why we accept civil law. Or if we work for a company, we accept their corporate guidelines or in a school educational standards. There has to be a form of authority. Well, it's the same for religion. In fact, even Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, was asked in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So the Jews were questioning Jesus, and you know what? They had the right to ask him by what authority he was doing these things. And so Jesus goes on, though, in verse 25 there of Matthew 21, to say that there are only two sources of authority, from heaven or from men. And so that's a key point that Jesus wants us to understand. That's the only two sources of authority. So 
as we go through and look at all these different religions, we have to ask, is that authority from men or is that authority from heaven as in through God's word? A couple passages here that the Bible kind of talks about, you know, man's authority. Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So really fundamental passages there that talk about when man decides what's best for man when it comes to worship, that will be the result. Now, the Bible also talks about authority from heaven. So for instance, 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about all scripture. Every part of the Bible is given by inspiration of God. And what does it help us do? It says here, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? This is verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, Jeff, we had a podcast you might remember on authority. So for those of you listening, if you go back to episode 95, we went through how we establish authority for all the religious practices that we do. And so uh, you might find that interesting if you have not heard it. So, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Oh, and I also might mention, and we probably get into this later on as well, there have been a number of podcasts about how to properly study the Bible. As we indicated, you know, Protestants typically point to the Scriptures and only the Scriptures, and yet they're highly diverse. So part of that is also understanding how best to study the Bible, interpret the Bible, etc., According to my notes here, it looks like we have some of our previous podcasts, 101 and 102, were about how to properly study the Bible. So I'd encourage our listeners, when they have time, to, to go back and review those as well. Now, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of diversity under the general umbrella of Christianity. And we talk about traditions of men, but our listeners may be wondering, when we use that term, traditions, are they all bad? Or are only some traditions bad? And, you know, based on the definition of the term, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes this is uh, the term tradition is just what's passed down. Some of the definitions earlier that you read, Brian, mentioned without being written, an oral kind of tradition. So again, it kind of depends on the definition of the term. But let me kind of, you know, give you some uh, quick examples. Certainly the Bible warns about traditions that originate with men, as our series is titled. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. In fact, hey, Brian, why don't you go ahead and read that particular passage? Yeah, we will do. And as we go through it, listen for that word tradition or traditions here, Jesus talking about them. So Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Yeah, a very uh, insightful passage. And let me make just a couple real brief observations. 
notice that these were adherents to the law of Moses. Scribes, Pharisees, claiming an allegiance to the law of Moses, and yet they had added something to the law of Moses, number one. These were not non-Jews. They had not forsaken God completely, gone off and started their own worship of some false idol. These were, at least considered themselves to be, you know, devout Jews. And yet by adding something to God's law, they were transgressing God's law, which I think is, is an important lesson for us to learn today. Don't think that you can worship God mostly kind of according to what the Bible says, but you want to tack on some stuff of your own. It's like, no. In fact, if you uh, go back to verse 9, that renders your worship of God as vain, pointless, uh, of no effect. So adding to God's word, even though you are worshiping and or following a lot of the rest of God's word, adding to it, you have just rendered your worship invalid or, or pointless. Continuing on, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Now, let's also recognize that within the Bible, the use of the word tradition isn't always condemned. Not all traditions are bad if they've been introduced through men inspired by the Holy Spirit. For example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writing says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So here we have cases where the word tradition is used in a positive sense when you look at the source. Holy Spirit inspired people. As opposed to or in contrast to uninspired people not being guided by directly, miraculously by God, who just want to add their own think-sos, the traditions of men. So there you go. Examples even from the Bible, some that are endorsed because of their original source, a lot of others that are condemned because, you know, people speaking for God when they have no right to. Brian? Yeah, so important to understand that distinction. So next, let's answer the question, you know, what are some common areas where we see the traditions of men in different religions? Now, some of these we will get into more detail in subsequent episodes, but let me just kind of run through really quick some of the more common areas where you see these traditions of men. So when it comes to the organization of the church, the scriptures teach us that there should be elders, potentially deacons if they're qualified, evangelists, and so forth. But when you look at man-made religions, they often have positions that you'll never find in the Bible, such as cardinals, bishops, pope, physical priests, pastors. Now, that term pastor is actually a biblical term if it's used according to how it's defined in the Greek, and that is a pair of qualified men serving as overseers in a congregation. But, you know, in our world today, they've kind of redefined that term pastor as one man that's the church leader. 
instead of a plural number of men as the Bible requires. Things like the director of music or youth leader. You see a lot of women taking leadership roles, leading worship, being preachers, uh, teaching adult classes that have men and women in it. You see oversight boards and synods and councils that churches established that you'll never read about in the scriptures. When it comes to doctrine, most of these religions that we're talking about will adhere to some type of creed that many years ago were written by men or women as a replacement or a supposed supplement to the Bible. So, for instance, the Book of Mormon, if you talk to Mormons, they'll say, oh yeah, we follow the Bible, but there is a Latter-day Revelation, so it's a supplement to the Bible. You often see a mixing of the old and new law in the Bible. So they may teach and follow the Ten Commandments, which we are actually no longer under today. Or they grab on to some ceremonial aspects of the old law, like you see in the Catholic Church. And they sort of blend it with the covenant that we live under today, the law of Christ. You'll see, as Jeff was just touching on, the church tradition that was handed down over many years. And it's their own traditions, of course, as Jesus was talking about. You see lots of different philosophies of men. In fact, not only in creeds, but you have many denominational men that write all kinds of books that the principles there within are not found in the scripture. You see a lot of misinterpretation of scripture. And we had an entire series on Calvinism and how it's permeated all of these different religions of premillennialism when we do our popular question shows. This one's always near the top. People are talking about the rapture and Jesus' reign on earth, all of those things. Things like belief only, baptism isn't necessary. Things like once you're saved, you're always saved. Or we can sin that God's grace covers my sin. It doesn't really matter what it is. Or, you know, the baptism is really to join the church versus the forgiveness of sins. And then you see a lot of, you know, just taking passages out of context and building a doctrine around it. So, so many religions have been built around like a single passage or a couple of, as we were talking about earlier, figurative passages that they're trying to make literal. How about worship? You see a lot of instrumental music in worship, not authorized by God's word. You see a lot of elements of the old law in worship. You see vain repetition prayer, where somebody's literally reading a prepared prayer. It's not their own words. They're just simply sort of mindlessly, if I'm being kind, uh, you know, just reciting this prayer, not really thinking about it. It's just, hey, our religion's always done this, so I'm going to say this exact prayer over and over and over. That's vain repetition. Things like theatrical presentations. So well beyond anything religious, they're putting on shows for kids and adults, plays like you would see in a school. A lot of charismatic, emotionally based worship. So that, as we talked about in community churches and other religions, has become sort of the norm. How about membership? You know, many congregations will allow sinners to place membership. So whether they are sinning because of adultery or drunkenness or homosexuality or drug users, these are sinners that have not repented, eh, but you can still be a member. We accept everyone. So therefore, they kind of have no membership guidelines at all. Or you have to either be selected or voted in. Once again, not something you find in the scripture. It's the work of the church. So we touched on this a little bit earlier. There are a lot of churches these days, especially once again, those community churches that have social programs, counseling, community outreach, what they would call fellowship meals. So they're eating in their building where they worship under this heading of fellowship meals. Things like childcare, business ventures. That's really, really popular and has been for years. And then you could kind of say under the overarching umbrella, Jeff, of anything deemed good, right, by man's standards. In other words, the end justifies the mean. If what we're practicing religiously accomplishes good, then how can it possibly be a bad thing? And so therefore they'll use their 
church treasury for whatever seems fit. They'll create these foundations and organizations to evangelize their beliefs. And once again, it's doing good. So how could it possibly be wrong? Jeff? Yeah, a lot of different characteristics. In fact, that last thing you were mentioning in terms of social programs, benevolence, helping the needy, et cetera. You know, I'm thinking of at least one religious denomination that that is their main focus. Salvation Army. Yeah. You know, the ones that you see like bell ringers on holidays, gathering money, et cetera. And of course, that kind of activity is not limited to them. But in terms of being notable by them, as an example, in fact, I was talking to a coworker the other day, and he was uh, bemoaning the fact that you know some of these large churches bring in all kinds of money, but then don't turn it around and spend it on the community, spend it on helping the community, you know, soup kitchens, food, clothing, shelter, etc. Almost as if to say, at least from his perspective, what are the natural functions of the local congregation is to be a welfare agency. Well, as we'll see later on, you know, that's not taught within the scriptures as well. So, you know, we've talked about how different religious groups differ in terms of various traditions, various practices, etc. Well, what about the church we can read about in the New Testament? What about the Lord's church, you know, that he said he would build and establish, etc.? What about it? Well, first of all, let's recognize that what we would call the Lord's Church, did have an origin, if you will, within the first century. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 40, prophesies that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. You know, it is indeed tied to the new covenant, according to Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Jesus himself said that he would build his church, singular not a plurality, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And, of course, we see that actually beginning, if you will, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So if you have a religious group that suddenly pops into existence in a unique kind of way, anytime after the first century, you got a problem because it has the wrong origin. It was started at the wrong time. Now, I might quickly add, you know, you might have a religion that starts at some point after the first century that is not a new religion, but more of a restoration of what the New Testament taught. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who just sort of pop into this unique set of values, unique set of practices, never seen before kinds of things. Source of authority, again, characteristics of the, new, of the Lord's Church. New Testament, Law of Christ, uh, John chapter 12, verse 48, as well as 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. And that's also, as Brian pointed out earlier, an important distinction, New Testament from Old Testament or Law of Moses Judaism, because, you know, some religious groups like to mix and match those two. Members, you know, the called out ones, the ecclesia, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, members, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Another area that's very distinctive with the Lord's Church versus other denominations, if you will, plan of salvation. And of course, as you look across various religious groups, 
widely diverse plan, what we would call, quote-unquote, plan of salvation. According to the New Testament pattern, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, sinless Son of God, who died for our sins. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Acts 16, verse 31. That such a belief will produce repentance from sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, uh, as well as Acts chapter 3, verse 19. That this change of life, change of attitude, will in turn produce in us a desire to publicly confess Jesus as indeed the Son of God. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16. Acts 8, verse 37. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. And finally, as an act of humility, faith, and obedience, we will submit to baptism, uh, immersion in water, in order, as part of this process, preceded by repentance and confession, which results in having our sins washed away. A lot of verses there, uh, Acts 22, verse 16, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and Acts 2, verse 38. But that is just the beginning of having become saved, a Christian, a member of the Lord's church, having our sins washed away. That's just the beginning. After that, we need to live faithfully, which you can kind of see throughout Romans chapter 6. Repent of sin when we sin, and I do say when, not if. 1 John chapter 1, association with faithful Christians in local congregations, uh, Hebrews 10, 25, uh, and other kinds of things. So, plan of salvation, according to the New Testament pattern. Brian earlier mentioned the organization of Jesus's church, and that is also specified. There is the singular church, uh, what some people might call the universal church of all of the saved. Jesus, Matthew 16, 18, promised to build his church, the called out ones, all the saved everywhere across time. But more tangible, you have uh, local congregations, that, at least according to the New Testament pattern, are autonomous, independent, not part of any hierarchy, not part of any association that takes its direction from some head other than Jesus, and that these local congregations are led by married men that meet certain qualifications, depending on where you read about them in the New Testament. Uh, they're called elders with deacons, which is just another term for servant and members. And again, this local multiplicity sense we see, uh, for example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, under churches of Christ, again, churches in a, in a plural sense. Work that Jesus gave it to do, Pretty much limited to evangelism, you know, preaching the word uh, to the lost, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, edifying, building up, encouraging the saved, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, benevolence to needy saints, Acts 4, verse 32 through 37, and then from an aspect of a public worship, you know, there's certain acts of public worship that we'll, we'll see in a moment. So, Brian, you know, fundamentally, as you look through the New Testament, there's a lot of specificity regarding Jesus and his church, Christians meeting in local congregations, in terms of even the name, when they worship, how they worship, how they become Christians, the work and organization of local congregations, etc., all specified for us within the pages of the New Testament. Brian, do you have any comments? 
Yeah, that's so very important. You know, God really let us know what his expectations are as it relates to the organization of the church. And so when we contrast that with the organizations we were talking about earlier that we see in so many other religions, it's very easy to see how it's very different in many of these congregations. And so it's something that we want to be aware of. All right, so the next thing we want to take a look at is what is our responsibility towards those in false religions? And when I say our we're talking about, you know, those who are Christians according to how the Bible defines Christians. So what is a Christian's responsibility towards those in false religions? Well, really, if you think about it, it starts with making sure that you know the truth well enough to be able to recognize error. You know, Jeff, a lot of people get pulled in, sucked in, if you will, to different religions, I'm convinced, because they don't know the truth. And so, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, we have to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That passage really says it all, that we have to show some diligence in studying and understanding God's word. Once we understand God's word, we need to watch and be ready. And what do we mean by watch? Well, watch out for false teaching. And not only watch out for it, but when somebody is teaching anything, we need to test them and their doctrine. So 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So notice, God puts that responsibility on you and I. So we can't say, well, I trust my mother and father, or I trust my pastor. They know what the truth is. No, God's saying we need to test what's being taught to ensure whether or not it's true. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. So it's our responsibility. And then ultimately, you know, as we become knowledgeable about God's word, we should be teaching those in error. And, you know, this is one of those things also, Jeff, where, you know, some people, it's so easy to become emotional when somebody's teaching a false doctrine. And you might start out by saying, well, hey, let's just talk about your beliefs and your religion versus my religion, if you will, the Church of Christ. And what often can happen is it can escalate into anger and arguments and so forth. Well, ultimately, you want to be able to sit down and reason with them from the scriptures. And so we see an example, for instance, with Apollos. Apollos was teaching only what he knew, and that was the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila heard him speaking, and they pulled him aside afterwards, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 26. It says, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So that really should be our attitude is, hey, let's just sit down. I'm not going to sit here and share my opinions. I just want us to take a look at God's word and see what does God's word teach? In fact, God said this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. So you want to defend the truth, but you want to help educate those that are in error if they're willing to just sit down and reason with us from the scriptures. And then ultimately, we can have no fellowship with somebody if they refuse to turn from their error. And so Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it goes on to say, you know, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so God wants us to be his people. Verse 17, he wants us to come out from among them, you know, those who are in false religion. We, we can't be in fellowship with them. We must be separate, verse 17 says. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. And so we have some responsibilities there 
Jeff, and I think when it comes to those in false religions, we just hope that they'll sit down, look at the scriptures with us, and come to an agreement as to what the truth is. I like the uh, the emphasis you're placing there on like studying and reasoning together. I hate to say it, but the history of Christianity has been littered with Christians going above and beyond that and starting to persecute other Christians, literally fighting against other Christians, waging war against other Christians, killing them, martyring them in all kinds of horrific ways. And that certainly is not according to the scriptures uh, as well. That's exactly right. Well, hey, to wrap up our podcast, we want to answer a couple of questions that have been submitted about this subject. And so, Jeff, let's ask you the first one from Basayo. And he says, if a church has just one or two wrong doctrines, could it still be of Christ? And then he goes on to say, there's a saying here in Nigeria by professing Christians, no church is without at least one false teaching. What can a Christian do in such a situation, he asks. Yeah, and Brian, that's kind of an interesting challenge, you know, especially in regions of the United States and perhaps, you know, elsewhere around the world where there's a limited number of what we might consider sound congregations. I mean, if you're living within an area and the only local church, yeah, might teach a lot of the truth, but also teach a, a little bit, quote unquote, a little bit of error. And that's the only one available. Yeah, is it okay? You know, go along to get along kind of thing. But unfortunately, as we've seen in today's podcast, you know, the New Testament is full of commands and encouragement to be of one mind, united, believing and teaching the same thing. And yet, we also have to recognize that we don't want to be overly judgmental, overly critical, fussy, etc., especially in matters of personal judgment and personal opinion, you know, where God perhaps has given us liberty to act within certain broader boundaries, and now we have to decide. You know, some simple things like how many times we want to meet on Sunday and when we go into our worship service, you know, what's the exact sequence of things? Uh, you know, those kinds of, you know, matters of, of judgment. Uh, certainly, when you look at examples in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see Jesus not hesitating at all to point out problems within congregations, to urge them to repent. To add to that, I also like the principle of Galatians chapter 5 verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, a little compromise now, a little bit more later, and soon you and your group drift into accepting pretty much just about anything, again, just for the sake of unity. And that's why the scriptures, you know, urge, you know, unity, oneness of thought and belief based on compliance with the scriptures. Now, also to add to that, as I mentioned a few moments ago, part of that unity also includes compromising and accommodating, again, when it comes to matters of personal judgment, personal conscience, you know, things that are not what we would call doctrine. And certainly from our website, under the topics menu item, F for fellowship, certainly addresses this, uh, particularly in the context of Romans chapter 14. So, bottom line for Baseo, you know, we try to get along peaceably when we can, while still, and more importantly, respecting the boundaries set by God's Word. We want to find the scriptural, God-approved balance, if you will, between being too critical, harsh, fault-finding, and being too tolerant toward sin 
and injecting or replacing or adding to God's work. An important balance there. Brian, any comments before we go to a question for you? Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a balance. In fact, as we go through this series, one thing that we'll find is that many false religions will say, well, we are naturally not going to agree on everything, so let's just accept instrumental music, or let's accept, like we were talking about, community churches, all faiths kinds of beliefs. But yet, we know, of course, the scriptures, when it comes to doctrine, that's not something we can compromise on. And so sometimes it's a matter of weaker members that may have an erroneous belief, you know, us working with them to help them understand the truth, not kicking them out, so to speak, right? But saying, hey, let's sit down once again, reason from the scriptures. You kind of have this belief that's off. We need to bring it back to what the scriptures say so that we can have true unity within the church. Appreciate that. And so the the final question here, which in some ways kind of covers, or if you will, summarizes this whole podcast, comes in from Benji saying, what is the right religion? Yeah, good question. And, you know, we've hopefully answered that throughout this podcast, as you mentioned, that the Bible teaches us that, you know, the only religion, if you will, that's acceptable to God is what is found in outline in his word. And so it has to be based on the law of Christ, which is the law that we live under today. As we touched on earlier, you know, Jesus established his church that was purchased with his blood when he died on the cross. And so Jeff touched on a passage earlier about Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Uh, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And then one other passage, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, this is speaking of God, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it makes it very clear. Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. It's his church. All religion, if we use that term in general, falls under the authority of Jesus based on God's word. So as we've been touching on, you know, unfortunately, there are so many religions today that were established by different men or women. And as you said earlier, Jeff, any religion in church where the founder is not Christ or that cannot trace its origin back to the first century cannot be the church that we read about in the Bible. And if you examine their practices, that that becomes very evident. So the church that we are members of must be Christ's church. It must practice exactly what the church practice that we read about in the Bible. And, you know, as we have also touched on, you know, we see things like they came together on the first day of the week, Sunday, to remember the Lord's death. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Matthew 26, 26 through 29, talks about the memorial that Jesus established to remember his death, what we often call the Lord's Supper. We see that when they assembled, they worshiped and sang to the Lord, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. There were prayers offered up, Acts 2.42. They gave back to the Lord monetarily based on what how they had prospered, 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2. And then they heard the word proclaimed in a sermon, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. So when you look at that pattern that we read about in the scriptures, this has to be the same pattern that a church follows today if they want to be considered the Lord's church. So to 
Benj, I would encourage him to visit our website. We have a section under the topics area called Seeking a Church. And in that section, you'll find a lot of information regarding what the Lord's Church should practice according to what the scriptures teach. Jeff? Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Yeah, and certainly, as, as we've mentioned before, you know, certainly there are in all of these various religious denominations, you know, people that are, you know, honest, sincere, you know, morally good people. And yet we would try to portray from the scriptures, they're not aligned with what the scriptures teach by virtue of the fact that they're teaching and practicing, you know, traditions of men, not according to the word of God. And of course, from our perspective, you know, we are trying to speak the truth in a loving way, you know, not putting people down or, you know, persecuting or, you know, waging war against these people, but trying to bring them to a better knowledge of the truth. And for that reason, we would certainly encourage our listeners to uh, look at and listen in on subsequent uh, podcasts uh, in this series. But in the meantime, Brian, any other comments before we uh, point them to various website resources? Uh, just a final thought for me. And yeah, as you mentioned, in this series, we're going to kind of take a look at groups of religions. So for instance, the Protestant religions, what they believe, cults like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, and then modern religions. So we'll just kind of take a look at groups of religions, if you will, what they believe in practice, examine their own creeds and their own stated beliefs, and compare it to God's Word to see what we can find. Thank you, sir. So as we've mentioned before, I encourage our listeners to come to the website, biblequestions.org. We're under the Topics menu item. Brian mentioned a few moments ago, there's Seeking a Church. Uh, that's in addition to Steps to Salvation, which again is a, a key discriminator with various religious groups. C for Church Government, Church Benevolence, and Church the True. E for Elders, D for Deacons, as well as D for Denominationalism. T for Preaching, A for Autonomy, and A for Authority. I for institutionalism, which is an aspect of religious groups joining with secular organizations to do the work they are trying to do. And finally, and maybe more importantly, you for unity. A lot of good material that we would encourage our listeners to take advantage of. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.